It's happened to all of us. We were going about the business of our day, not thinking too much about the people in our lives, and then out of the blue, we see somebody that we know from a distance, and it, we're taken aback a little bit. I mean, we didn't expect to see that person in this context on that day. And after we collect ourselves, we sort of look closely to make sure it's really our dad or our cousin or our neighbor, we began to approach them and to give a greeting. And so we walk quickly toward them, and all of a sudden they turn toward us, and we stop, dead in our tracks. That wasn't my dad or my cousin or my neighbor. In fact, it was a case of mistaken identity. It happens to all of us. It's happened to me probably once this week already. When someone appears to be someone that they're not from a distance, but the closer we get, we realize that the features don't quite line up. That's a case of mistaken identity. There's been a lot of that that's been happening in the Gospel of John as we've been looking at John 8 through 12. Jesus' identity is being unfolded before anyone who is listening or watching. And we see him last week referred to in the first part of John chapter 10 as the Good Shepherd. And it's a wonderful description as we listen to it and as we read it. It is one of our favorite descriptions of Jesus. And we see this, if he is the good shepherd, he's indeed worthy of us yielding our lives to him. But this begs a question. If Jesus is the good shepherd, who are the sheep? After all, there are a lot of people that think that they are part of the family of God. And even here in the Gospel of John, we have Jews that think they're part of the family of God. We have Pharisees that think they're part of the family of God and even leaders in the family of God. We have disciples who think they're part of the family of God, but the leaders are continuing to push away. And right in the middle of it all, we have this man that claims to be the good shepherd. It's not all that dissimilar from today, is it? When you think about it, there are a lot of people that would identify themselves as part of God's family. Here in the midst of his self-revealing words, we see that Jesus also not only gives some self-identification, he also identifies what this flock really looks like. He identifies some features of them. He gets right into the middle of this case of mistaken identity. And he talks about them. And as he does, all of us who want to be part of God's family, we sort of sit up a little bit because we realize that he's talking about us as well. So turn with me to John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. I've heard a number of your Bibles turning already. Is everybody there? John 10, 22 to 42? You guys ready? Ready. This is what it says. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, 
And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he who called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. It is of no coincidence that this interaction with the Pharisees takes place in verse 22 during the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. This feast is what the Jews today call Hanukkah. It was not a biblical festival. It was one in which the Jews recognized some 200 years earlier that the temple of God had been overrun by pagans, particularly one named Antiochus Epiphanes. They desecrated the temple, set up idols to foreign gods. Some years later, a couple, two or three years later, the Jews revolted, took the temple back, and rededicated it to God. But the unique feature of why it's important to recognize that in this story is because from that time forward, the temple, the temple and your participation in the life of the temple became ever-increasing identifier that you were part of God's family. And as such, as time went on and as the Pharisees demonstrate, the association with the temple and the actions that, that you would participate there 
began to replace the heart and the spiritual disposition that the activities of the temple were meant to cultivate. To be part of God's family, they believed you had to be a worshiping community around the temple. And as Jesus comes and is identifying himself as the good shepherd, the question arises, really, who is part of God's family or who is or who are the sheep? What does this flock really look like? What do they do? What are some of the features that we can recognize to identify them? And he gives four. Now, unfortunately, we will not have nearly enough time to pick apart all the details of this passage, but these four features of the flock are ones that we want to zoom in on. And number one is this. What does it look like to be part of God's family? Well, God's true flock responds to his voice, which means, I think, that they respond to his word. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. Jesus sets up this contrast between those who are part of his flock and those who aren't. Those who aren't, including the Pharisees, are ones who choose not to believe. They're, theirs is a sin of unbelief. Conversely, he says, those who are part of my flock do believe. And this responding to his voice, I think, has a two-part component to it. The voice of Jesus is the one that calls us to faith in him. We saw this in the first half of John chapter 10. Verse 27 here echoes verse 3, that Jesus calls the sheep. He, the sheep hear his voice, and he leads them out. This is the gospel call. This is the call of Jesus on each one of us to confess our sin to him, to recognize that he laid down his life for his people, for the forgiveness of our sin, and therefore to follow him the rest of our days. There's nothing we can do of our own accord. This is the first indicator of being part of God's true family, that we respond to the gospel call. And if Jesus gives four features of this flock, it's important to note that there's really only one qualification to be part of this flock, and it's right here, that we respond to the gospel call in faith. The rest are descriptors of what it means to be part of the flock. So Jesus calls us to himself in the gospel call, but beyond that, we see that his voice also directs our path. In the first century, people were able to hear his voice audibly speaking, but since then, millions upon millions upon millions of people have responded to the voice of this shepherd by responding to his word. And that is why throughout Christian history, Christians have held the Bible in high esteem. This is not just any book. This is God's self-revelation to his people. This is the way that we hear the voice of the good shepherd. This is why my Muslim friend refers to all of us as people of the book. Because in it, we hear this good shepherd leading now, I must say, I have never seen anyone grow rapidly in their spiritual life without regular reading of the Bible. I don't even know if it's possible. You can grow spiritually if you just hear the word preached to you. 
You can grow spiritually if you are fed the scriptures in your Sunday school class or in your small group, and that is helpful to you. But if you want to grow rapidly, read your Bible. Because in it, you hear this regular occurrence of the shepherd's voice that leads you on the path of this life. John Wesley once said, I want to know one thing. And I think by that he meant, I want to know one thing in this life. That is the way to heaven. And God himself has condescended to teach the way. And he's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book. The response to saving grace is one that is an ongoing response to the hearing of his voice. And that is the first feature of the flock. The second feature is that God's true flock will know him and be known by him. Look with me again at verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I know them, and they follow me. This again correlates with verse 3, that the shepherd knows each one by name. Before the beginning of the world, Jesus knew who his family was. His father knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows what we think. He knows what we feel. He knows what we want. He knows the sincerity or lack thereof in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but the thought of someone knowing all of the junk that goes on in here is a pretty scary proposition to me. I mean, the closest people in my life, my wife, my parents, they don't know all of the things that go on inside of here. But there's one who does. And despite the fact that he knows everything that makes up you, all of the good and all of the ugly, he beckons you to follow him anyway, to be part of this family of God. And one of the amazing realities that we see here is not only does he know you, I mean, after all, he is God, he should know you. But in an age of, ex of spiritual experiences, in an age where people seek all kinds of ways and methods to unveil the mysteries of the world, in a time when people are genuinely seeking to know God himself, that God himself becomes available, he's accessible. We can really know him as well. And how does that happen? It happens by responding to his voice, of course. I love my wife, Amy. I enjoy talking to her. And if I'm gone all day and I come home, I want to talk to her and to know what happened that day. What was good, what was bad, what our kids destroyed, what kinds of things that are making her happy or giving her stress. In short, I want to know her. And I wonder how much I'd get to know her if we didn't really communicate with each other. If I came home and rattled off a string of questions and she just sort of gave one-word answers. Or if we simply 
cohabitated and rubbed shoulders at dinner time. Would I really get to know her if she didn't engage with me in that type of way? I meet people all the time that say, Pastor Nick, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really struggling right now. I just don't feel close to Jesus. I'm just not feeling it these days, and I don't really know what to do. And I always ask the same three questions. Number one, are you reading your Bible regularly? Are you getting to know him better? Number two, are you praying Sounds so simple. And number three, are you engaging in any activities, sinful habits or patterns of life that are rebelling against him? It sounds so simple, it's almost stupid. I mean, but you know what? The same daily conversation that saves your marriage, (laughs) that changes your relationship with your spouse, that creates an ever-growing dynamic in your home, that simple conversation that happens is a similar type of dynamic when it comes to knowing your shepherd. Are you really getting to know him? And the implications of not just recognizing the good shepherd for your life, but actually knowing the shepherd are twofold. Number one, when we really know him, we don't follow false shepherds. And there are plenty that will come along in this life that will like the hired hand of the first part of John 10, call us to different pastures. Sometimes they come in the representation of another religion. Sometimes they come through an author or what we might call a false teacher. But more often than not, what I've seen is that the false shepherds in our lives come in forms of our friends, (laughs) of our loved ones, in the form of somebody that we know and we find them compelling And they present to us a different way of living, a different pasture to graze in, something that's different than how the good shepherd would have us to live. And the second implication is is that when that person comes and they present to us a way of life that's contrary to God's way, when you really know the good shepherd, it becomes not only easy to identify the false shepherds, but it becomes easier and easier, believe it or not, to say no to them. Because I know that even though the promise of greater wealth is here with this false shepherd, a physical pleasure is here with this false shepherd, and what would make me feel more affirmed or feel better is going this way with this false shepherd. I know my good shepherd. And I know that even though I'm not feeling the things that this guy is presenting right now, that he is ultimately leading me to a path that is better for me. Sincere knowledge of him leads to sincere trust in him. Because God's true flock is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. The third way that we see them identified in this text is again in verse 27. Not only do they hear his voice and respond to it, not only do they know him and are known by him, but we see in verse 27, my my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, which means that they obey me. Now, 
I think one of the largest struggles that we have in our Christian subculture today is one that mirrors our society, and that is the struggle of duplicity. When we have such a relative moral standard in our lives like we do, it becomes very easy to live duplicitous lives. What I mean by that is it becomes very easy to become a chameleon. When I'm with this group of people, I can think this way, walk this way, talk this way, and interact this way. Not a problem. But when I'm at home, I can think this way, talk this way, walk this way. Not a problem. Two different standards of living. And it's becoming commonplace in the working world. It becomes commonplace in our families. And the temptation is for it to become commonplace in our lives. Our commitment to God in this way takes a back seat. And we all struggle with this in some ways, don't we? I mean, that is really the nature of sin, The nature of sin is that I've put my faith in the Lord Jesus. I've committed to follow him with all of my life. But now I've made a choice to live otherwise. And I sinned. But the difference between those who are part of the flock and those who aren't are by God's grace, when I make a choice to sin, the Spirit is conviction becomes upon me. The shepherd seeks me out. He pulls me back into the fray and I'm found, restored, forgiven in him again. But, but, but if we come to the place where we realize that the patterns of my life are actually in contradiction to where the good shepherd is leading, we've got to ask ourselves the question, which shepherd are we actually following? Because you can't follow two. One scholar writes that no one has the right to claim to be one of Christ's sheep if he or she lives in willful, persistent, open disobedience and refuses to do something about it. And that last part is key. Just as there are false shepherds, so there are goats who try to pass as sheep. And we know in Matthew 7, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And I think the reason why we struggle with this is because in our American evangelicalism, we have put such a high focal point on the decision. The decision to put your faith in Jesus. This is why a lot of churches do altar calls. This is how we judge success. This is how we think the gospel is expanding. And in some ways, there's a lot of that that is so good and so right and so true. But hear this. Jesus doesn't just want decisions. He wants disciples. And disciples are people who hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. They obey him. I have three maps. Three map applications on my iPhone. Google Maps, Apple Maps, and MapQuest. And I hate them all. Can anybody relate? I hate them all because, and I love them all, because there are times when I don't know where I'm going. Actually, that's a lot of the time these days. And they help me get to where I need to go. But I hate them all because at one time or another, they've all taken my unquestioning obedience to them, and they've stomped on my trust. And what that looks like is that I end up at a dead end. I've ended up in the middle of nowhere. I've lost cell reception, and then I'm not getting any directions at all. And most recently on a road trip, I ended up at the Canadian border (laughs) without my passport or a way to get back into our country. 
And after my friend pulled a keen U-turn and smooth-talked the customs officer to letting us back into the United States of America, I decided that I was never going to use that map application again until the next week. You know, I think now that I have been abused by them, I hear their voice, her little Google Maps voice, and I skeptically follow them when I listen because they've all led me astray before. I think some of us treat Jesus that way. We hear his voice and we skeptically listen. And I understand why. I mean, every person in my life, every single one, has let me down in some way. Every single person in my life has in some way led me astray, sometimes for a moment, sometimes for longer periods of time. Every single one has a level, just that shave of skepticism attached to it. But that is one of the incredible things about the Good Shepherd. That Jesus, this Good Shepherd, has never and will never lead you astray. He's unique in this way. And Psalm 23 points to it. David, as he writes the psalm, talks about the Good Shepherd that truly leads us to green pastures. He restores our soul. He is the one that leads us to righteousness. He is the one that in the most difficult periods of our lives, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, this good shepherd is the one that is right there with us. He doesn't abandon us. And he grants us goodness and mercy along the way. Following Jesus in obedience with your life is not what is going to save you. Faith saves you. But following Jesus in obedience in your life is evidence that you are saved and that he really is the good shepherd because God's true flock is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. And that leads us to the fourth feature of this flock. They hear his voice and they respond. They know him and are known by him. They follow him, which means they obey. And fantastically, these sheep, these, this flock of God, has eternal life. Look with me at verse 28. Jesus' claim is that I give them, meaning my sheep, not you unbelieving ones, not you unbelieving Pharisees, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There are so many important things to notice here. First, notice that the life that he gives is eternal. Thus, it's not something that you can lose. Once he gives it to you, it's forever. Many people go through life and they wonder if God's ultimate blessing will be upon them only if they do good things. But the second that they sin, they fear that that is going to be removed from them. Well, maybe they don't think it for the little sins, like gossip or slander or things like that. Maybe they only think about it for the big ones. If I cheat on my spouse, then God is going to remove his blessing. It's not even the right question to ask. If God gives you something 
eternally, can it ever be taken away? Of course not. From the moment, if it's eternal in its nature, from the moment it's given to you as a free gift, from that moment moving forward, it lasts forever. And the one who is lasting forever gave it to you forever. It's yours. There's no conditions attached. Payment for it has been made, and that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. The guarantee for it has been delivered, and that's what happened when he rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, you can rise from the dead too. The individual down payment as it relates to you personally is made when he gives you the Holy Spirit upon your conversion in faith. And so when we wander, we're called back by the shepherd. And we respond because we are his. Notice, notice secondly, the power of this security. He's, I mean, the gift itself is powerful, but the security that it has is powerful as well. They will not be snatched out of my hand. That's a powerful image. They will not be snatched out of my father's hand. And I can think of no better verse to elaborate on this than Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, when the Apostle Paul says, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My propensity to wander can't separate me. My eagerness to follow other shepherds can't separate me. My stupid choices can't separate me. My momentary lapses in judgment or slip-ups can't separate me. Satan, with all of his power and minions and all of their forces to try to undo you, will not be able to snatch us out of the hand. Nothing at all can pull you out of the hand of the Savior who has laid down his life for you. And all of this is because Jesus and his Father are one. His identity as the Good Shepherd is validated by the works that he does. And more than that, his will, his strength of his hand, the leading of his voice, all of these are an enactment of his Father's desire And this is because they are of one accord in purpose and in mission. One purpose. But more than that, more than that, we see elsewhere in the Bible that they are of one essence. Mystery of the Trinity. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we've been singing about today. Of one divine essence. God's true flock is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. God's true flock is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. They respond to his voice. They know him and they're known by him. They follow him, which means they obey him. And they have eternal life in him. God's true flock is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. And in closing this morning... Warren Wearsby gives a helpful analogy. As he writes about 
the first church building project that he had as a young pastor in Indiana. For those of you who don't know Warren Wearsby, he's an author and a longtime pastor and preacher. He's a Bible scholar. He and the church's building committee were working with a church architect named Frank Shute. And at one of the committee meetings, Wearsby said that he learned a good lecture about architecture and theology. In the meeting, he asked Mr. Shute, why do we need such an expensive, high ceiling in the auditorium? I mean, we're not building a cathedral. Why don't we just build an auditorium with a flat roof on it and then put a church facade in front of the building? Wearsby writes that in a very quiet voice, Mr. Shute replied, Pastor, the building you construct reflects what a church is and what a church does. You don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's for circus sideshows. The outside and the inside must agree. Jesus stands before Jews and Pharisees and disciples, and he says, the outside and the inside must agree. My true flock, the true family of God, is displayed in how they follow the shepherd. Jesus wants disciples, not just decisions. And the call for me and the call for you in this is very simple. Faithfully follow this one, who is indeed our good shepherd.